I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the book of Isaiah. Our text is Isaiah 5. We are in the prologue, the first section of the first book of Isaiah. This is diagnosis and prognosis. Isaiah gives us a diagnosis of Judah's spiritual state. It's not good. He also provides the prognosis, that is, he tells us the consequences we can expect to follow Judah's spiritual disease if left untreated. We have three sections in this prologue. Chapter 1 was sin and experience. Isaiah gave us insight into the national, religious, and social condition of Judah. Chapters 2 through 4 was sin and election. Isaiah continued to diagnose the religious and social situation in Judah while also raising for us this difficult question of a chosen people. He followed a vision of ideal Jerusalem with a sad description of actual Jerusalem. We have to ask, will these sinful apostate people really fill the streets of a new Jerusalem simply because sometime in the past God decided to make their ancestors his chosen people? The answer was no. No, they will not fill the streets of heavenly Jerusalem. The election of the nation of Israel was an election for a special purpose in salvation history. They were chosen to receive God's covenant law. They were chosen to be his representatives. They were not chosen for guaranteed mass salvation. Individual Jews still had a choice to make regarding their personal relationship with God. According to Isaiah's vision, only a remnant will participate in the glory of future Jerusalem. They will participate along with a remnant from many peoples, but not with the majority of Israelites. We now move into the third and last section of our preface. In chapter 5, Isaiah raises the issue of sin and grace. When we think of grace from a new covenant perspective, we tend to think of the specific grace of Christ's atonement. That is, the free gift of grace given for our forgiveness. Grace as a free gift can apply more broadly to all the gifts God gives. Paul details gifts of grace lavished on Israel as the chosen people when he laments for them at the beginning of Romans 9. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. God has done so much for his chosen people. Is there a point where God's grace stops coming? How should God feel when his good gifts are ignored or thrown back into his face? Does the holiness of God demand, at some point, a righteous response of wrath? Can the people of God continue living off the sincerity of their ancestors without a response of their own to the grace of God? This section divides into two parts. Isaiah begins with the metaphor of a vineyard as a description of God's grace to Israel. 
He follows with six woes that contrast Israel's sin against the backdrop of God's kindness. What should be done with such a people? Is there hope for such a people? This final section of the prologue offers none. We begin with the metaphor of the vineyard in Isaiah 5, 1-7. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it, and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Isaiah begins the poem from the intimate perspective of a lover singing a song about her beloved. There's some similarity to the biblical book Song of Solomon, but there's also a lot of difference. There, the vineyard is the body of the lover. The whole poem is a love song. Isaiah's beginning here sounds like a love song, but we quickly see that it is not. The vineyard's not the body of the beloved. The vineyard is something precious to the beloved. Isaiah has drawn us in to view God very positively. We who love God are asked to consider the case of Judah from our beloved's perspective. And like the church is described as the bride of Christ, Isaiah invites those who love God to rejoice in the goodness of his labor. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. So this is our this is our initial perspective. This is how we're viewing God. Then the singer details that labor of love. And we can pause with each phrase to imagine a man at work with glad purpose. First, he dug it all around, removed its stones. He's plowing up the hillside. You can see him carrying off the stones, maybe setting them apart for later use on the wall or the watchtower. And he planted it with the choicest vine. We envision the man moving down the rows, digging small holes and inserting young vines. And they're not just any kind of vine. He selected the choicest vine for the special vineyard. And he built a tower in the middle of it. He's fully invested. He intends to live here and watch over this vineyard. And he also hewed out a wine vat in it. He has expectation. He's planted the vineyard with a purpose. He's done a complete work. He's ready for the grapes to come in to make the wine. There is nothing more to do but wait for the harvest. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. That last phrase creates a turning point in the poem. All has gone well until the harvest comes in, and the fruit turns out to be worthless. The translation of the Hebrew word for those grapes varies. Your Bible might read worthless grapes, or bad grapes, or wild grapes. 
Most of your comments on the Hebrew writing, the word translated bad fruit, only found here and in verse 4, means literally stink fruit. Delich notes the difference between a wild and a domestic vine is only in the matter of care. That is exactly the point. What can now be done for the people of God when a total work of grace has been lavished on them, and yet they remain as if grace had never touched them? Metaphors do have their limitations. This gracious work of God did not happen over the span of one year, and the bad fruit did not come in only during one harvest. The toil of the beloved for his vineyard stretches back from this present moment of the poem 800 years to the time of Moses when God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made covenant with them at Sinai. He gave them a good and just law to live by. He brought them into their own land and gave them walled cities for protection and the temple worship with the Psalms. Even before Moses, stretching back another 500 years, God had called Abraham and made with him a covenant of promise. God gave birth to the 12 tribes and enabled them to grow into a great nation. God's toil over this vineyard has been a long work, and the harvests have been many. Consider God's patience. Over and over again, when the nation turned away from him, he allowed the consequence of sin to inflict them, but he did not turn them out of the land. He waited patiently for repentance. He has proved himself slow to anger and quick to forgive, receiving the wayward back instantly. As the people continually struggled with idolatry and sin, God sent workers into the vineyard. Lawsuit prophets following the model of Elijah and Elisha keep calling the people back to the way of God. Should not God expect good fruit when he has lavished so much grace on the people of Israel? But what crop does this present Judah produce? Stink fruit. That's an image I can relate to. God has lavished so much grace on me, and still, much too often, stink fruit comes out. But this image is not directed towards people who have received God's grace and yet still struggle in their pursuit of God. This image is directed at a people who have persistently turned away from sincere worship, a people who do not even attempt obedience. Isaiah switches to God as the speaker in verses 3 and 4. God asks this question. And now, O habitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? That was a rhetorical question. God gives his own answer in verses 5 and 6. So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. God will take away the grace of his protection. He will remove the hedge, and it will be consumed. God does not only remove his presence, he actively punishes. I will lay it waste. I will charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. Isaiah sums up the metaphor in verse 7, making sure we have understood. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. 
what crop had God expected from a nation he had so blessed with his word and his presence through the generations? He expected justice and righteousness. What crop came forth? Bloodshed and a cry of distress. Isaiah does not suggest that God easily turns away from the work of his hands. He's going to give us more evidence. He's going to detail Judah's spiritual state as an indictment against them and a justification for God's wrath to be poured out on this people. Before moving to that indictment, I'd like to make an observation about the poetry of that last line. There is a play on word sounds in the Hebrew. In the first verse set, the Hebrew for justice is misfat, and the Hebrew for bloodshed is mispah. Then in the second verse set, the Hebrew for righteousness is sedakah, and the Hebrew for cry of distress is seakah. It's misfat, mispah, tzedakah, tzedakah. I'm not going to be pointing out Hebrew wordplay or rhyming as we go. Along with most who would listen to this podcast, I'm not able to appreciate the Hebrew like I would like. I learn things like this through commentaries. And I, and I believe one of the amazing traits of Hebrew poetry is how much we can pick up on and appreciate in our translations. We have plenty to recognize and think about just in the English. Still, I mention this example of wordplay as a reminder that there's a whole additional layer of beauty and skill that lies beneath our translations. One of the characteristics of Hebrew poetry that often translates very well is the structure of the text. We'll see that in the next passage, Isaiah 5, 8 to 30, where Isaiah details the stink fruit of Judah. The text is structured in a series of six woes. There's also a parallel set of therefores after the first two woes and then after the next four woes. This is the pattern. Woe, woe, shorter therefore, longer therefore, woe, 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 shorter therefore, longer therefore. The number of six woes works well as a human number. Man, both male and female, was created on the sixth day. But without the seventh day of God's rest, man is unable to live in the fullness of who he is created to be. Six is one short of seven. It's humanism without God. The total of six woes emphasizes fallen humanity, the fallenness of Judah apart from right relationship with her creator. Our first set of two woes addresses the abuse of life's material benefits. Our second set of four woes addresses failure in the spiritual and moral obligations of life. This stink fruit crop serves as a powerful indictment. Let's read each woe separately before moving on to the next one. We begin with our first woe in verses 8 through 10. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room, so that you have to live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones without occupants. For ten acres of vineyard will yield only one bath of wine, and a homer of seed will yield but an ephah of grain." First, let me mention that the idea of woe is connected to the idea of covenant curse. Curse in the biblical sense is not some kind of magic or spiritual curse that a person can try to place on another person like a hex or something. That's an altogether different use of the word curse. The idea of biblical curse is punishment from a rightful king against covenant breakers. 
Woe to those means let them be cursed. Cursed in this sense, let the rightful anger of their covenant king fall on them because they have turned against him. The specific woe here is a calling of covenant punishment on the wealthy who abuse their wealth in a way that bears down on and pushes out the less fortunate. Wealth and land in Israel are supposed to be understood as a stewardship. God owns the land. He gives that land as possession to be used in a way that honors him. Old covenant law doesn't oppose the idea of personal property. It validates that idea. But that property is supposed to be used in stewardship. So when does the accumulation of wealth become stink fruit to the nose of God? The adding of house to house and field to field creates this picture of the extremely wealthy living alone in the middle of a land they've gobbled up. There's no place for the less wealthy to live. Many houses will become desolate, even great and fine ones. The workers are gone, forced out. The land is no longer used as a means of produce and support. A huge vineyard of 10 acres yields a meager result of wine, and a basket of seed produces only a cup of grain. The drive for amassing wealth with no regard for people and no regard for produce from the land brings a curse onto society for which the greedy are accountable. The second woe is in verse 11 and 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute, and by wine. But they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the works of his hands. Verse 11 could apply to a severe alcoholic who drinks all day from when they rise early in the morning until late in the evening. But the reference to banquets accompanied with all kinds of musical instruments points again towards the wealthy, the potential leaders of society. Rather than taking the opportunity afforded by their wealth to steward society, they take their wealth as means for pursuing unending pleasure. It's no wonder they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, distracted as they are by food and entertainment and strong drink all day long. It's surprising they can stand. They've rendered themselves unable to discern the things that God is doing. And there's a double charge in the accusation that they do not consider the work of his hands. First, they do not consider the many gracious ways that God has blessed them. They live off a societal foundation of knowledge and order and blessing that has made their own wealth and achievements possible. They take for granted all that God has done before them to make possible the kind of society they live in. Second, they do not pay attention to the punishment that currently afflicts them. That is also the work of God's hand. That's the idea of the stricken man in chapter 1 who's wounded from the sole of his foot even to his head and yet has no awareness that his own worldview and behavior are the cause of the pain and God is disciplining them to, to get them to turn around. They have no discernment. There are consequences to this abuse of material blessing. Isaiah will talk about those consequences. He's providing us prognosis in a shorter therefore and a longer therefore. The shorter, therefore, is just verse 13. Therefore, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge, and their honorable men are famished, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Here's the bottom line. 
The final covenant curse listed in Deuteronomy 28 is exile. The lack of knowledge is self-inflicted. They refuse God as a source of wisdom. The one thing they will not do is turn to him in repentance. That refusal affects all levels of society. Honorable men here doesn't mean uh, men of moral integrity. It refers to the wealthy in society, to the leaders who hold honorable positions. They will experience hunger and thirst together with the multitude. No one is excluded. The longer, therefore, is in verses 14 to 17. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure. And Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, descend into it. Her den of revelry and the jubilant within her. So the common man will be humbled and the man of importance abased. The eyes of the proud also will be abased. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment. And the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Then the lambs will graze as in their pasture, and strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy. Sheol or death is depicted as a greedy monster whose mouth opens wide to swallow all the splendor of Jerusalem. The banquets and and all the musical instruments and all the flowing wine, it all goes down the gullet. The phrase Jerusalem's splendor connects us back to the description of Jerusalem chapter 3. All that is considered beautiful and extravagant, the sweet perfume is turned to putrefaction as it slips and slides down the throat of death. Verses 15 and 16 connect us back to chapter 2 with the high-low theme that played out there. All men, common and important, will be brought down low, abased. Proud eyes that once looked down on God will now look down in shame. This bringing down is juxtaposed beside God's exaltation. God will show himself holy in his righteous judgment. As they are brought down, God is raised up. The land of Judah will be wiped clean of this people. That's the picture in verse 17 where lambs graze freely in empty pastures and strangers eat in waste places created by the indifference of the wealthy. We move next to a second set of woes. The first two woes describe the abuse of material wealth. The next four describe spiritual and moral failure. The third woe is in verses 18 to 20. Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Isaiah describe sin as a cart being drawn along behind a person. They are not innocently bound to the burden. They drag it willfully with cords of falsehood. That falsehood could be deceit used to gain whatever purposes the sinner desires. But because of the next verse, I think falsehood here points to self-deceit. They have convinced themselves of the truthfulness of their own corrupt path. They do not even seem to be aware that the burden they drag is a consequence of their own behavior. They mock the warning of the prophet, saying, Let God make speed, let him hasten his work, that we may see it. That's either a taunt to a God who they do not really believe in. Let him act. I'm ready. Strike me dead if you're so powerful. No, God, nothing. I'm still walking along. No smell of lightning here, God. It's either a taunt like that, or they believe that God must act on their behalf. 
Okay, God, do your thing. Make my life better. Don't you see I have this heavy load to bear, God? Why don't you help me pull it for a while? Hurry up your work. There's a complete lack of understanding. They do not discern that they are responsible, and they do not discern that God's slowness to act is mercy because righteousness is calling God to bring down wrath. He is not going to come down and help you drag the cart of sin. The fourth woe is in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Who is the one that calls evil good? It manifests itself in all different kinds of ways in different societies at different times. It's the one who celebrates the abuse of the poor as good business sense. It's the one who manipulates the courts of justice for for personal gain. It's the one who preaches the goodness of gay marriage. It's the one who argues that dogs and dolphins have the same level of intrinsic value as human beings who are made in the image of God. As societies devolve away from God's word, people develop all kinds of moral ideas. They define their own virtue. Eventually, they get to the point where they're actually substituting darkness for light and light for darkness. As Paul wrote in Romans one thirty-two, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. The fifth woe in verse 21 follows up this idea. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. This is the mocker of the Proverbs or of Psalm 1. This is not the naive person who doesn't know something is evil. This is not the foolish person who knows but does it anyway. This mocker has turned morality upside down. He believes in his own cleverness. The fool and the naive are drawn in by the mocker. They think he's wise. But moral discernment has been lost. It sounds smart. It's skeptical. It's critical. It's proud. It's wisdom in their own eyes. In the end, it's foolishness. The sixth woe is in verses 22 to 23. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. What virtues are extolled? They are heroes in drinking wine. They're not heroes who stand up for God. They're not heroes who fight for the downtrodden. They're heroes in wild parties and unscrupulous boardrooms. They've perverted the courts with bribes to protect their own profits. This woe creates a chiastic envelope with the first two woes. The first woe began with the abuse of a material wealth that left no place for the poor. The second woe considered the abuse of that wealth in drinking from morning until night. Here we have similar accusations in reverse order. First, they redefine morality to honor a man who is valiant in strong drink. And then they praise the man who uses wealth to overturn the courts of justice. Isaiah provides a shorter therefore in verse 24. This is what is coming. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble, and dry grass collapses into the flame. So their root will become like rot, and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Speaking of 
chiasm, note the poetic balance in the first line of verse 24. Isaiah starts with fire and ends with flame. Fire, stubble, dry grass, flame. This is the fate of a society that has wholly turned away from the Lord. The result is described in this vivid, accessible imagery as both flame and rot. You can see the tongue fire reaching out to consume the stubble of the shorn field. As it does, the dry grass collapses into flame. Or consider the root of the vine that has become like rot. The dry, browned blossoms produce no fruit, but instead blow away as dust. Those are Isaiah's images for this society that has rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. I've heard a speaker compare Europe to a a cut flower. It it still looks beautiful momentarily, but there's no credit giving to the Judeo-Christian rootedness that has that has led to the rule of law that has led to the the value of children and, and the equality of men and women the values that have formed this foundation of society that have helped to result in incredible wealth are discarded it's not even that somebody else has cut the flower away from the root the flower has cut itself off from its root and it will become brown and and blow away as dust We get in the last line a double intensification. Not only have they rejected the law, you know, rejected is strong enough, they have despised it. And not only is it the word of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the one who could easily stand as a wall of protection around society, but it is the Holy One of Israel. Who have they despised? They have despised the one who is moral perfection, And not just any holy one, they've despised the holy one with whom they have special relationship, the holy one of Israel. The final response, the longer therefore, doesn't actually begin with the word therefore. Isaiah uses a synonym on this account, but it's the same idea. This is is God's response, and the response is righteous. Verses 25 to 30. On this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people. And he has stretched out his hand against them and struck them down. And the mountains quake and their corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. He will also lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth. And behold, it will come with speed swiftly. No one in it is weary or stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps. Nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp, and all its bows are bent. The hooves of its horses seem like flint, and its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Its roaring is like a lioness, and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey, and it carries it off with no one to deliver it. And it will growl over it in that day like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. What fire licked up Israel as dry grass in a field? It is the anger of the Lord that has burned against them. That idea of God's anger burning against his sinful people goes back to the very beginning of the nation at Mount Sinai. From the start, their wandering hearts drifted away from God's word. He had just said, make no idols. They made an idol. They would fashion God in an image that fit their own vision of what he should be like. 
At that time, God drew Moses up into his own anger and into his own compassion. Moses also burned with anger, and then Moses pled for mercy. See, both of these realities are true in God's heart. There's this this righteous anger against sin, and yet this, this loving mercy for his people. God responded he could not go up in the midst of such a sinful people because his holiness would surely consume them on the way. Moses persisted, arguing, what's the point then? How can we be your people if you're not among us? God relented. But then perhaps Moses became worried, recognizing he had just invited holy fire to dwell among a very flammable people. How could God go up with a sinful people? Moses then asked of God, show me your glory. God told him he could not handle the sight of his glory, but he did speak his glory, declaring to Moses his name in Exodus 34, 6-7. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. The great theological question of Exodus is pictured in the burning bush. How does holy fire remain on a flammable bush without burning it up? How does holy God live with a sinful people without consuming them? It has to do with God's nature. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And so he has continued on with his people through the generations. But does the gracious character of God mean that he will allow sin to go unpunished indefinitely? No. The verse continued, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God's grace has been abused for generations. God's patience is at an end. He is slow to anger. That is not the same thing as saying he does not become angry. God's anger has begun to burn against Judah. There is no hope depicted in this last passage, only wrath. Isaiah introduces two phrases here that he will employ through the the whole of his prophecy. First, God stretches out his hand. We will see that phrase repeatedly. God is in the field as a king directing his army. Imagine him on horseback at the head of a mighty horde, stretching out his arm, pointing at you. The Lord of hosts is not stretching his arm out against the enemies of Israel. He is pointing straight at Isaiah's readers, straight at Jerusalem. Corpses lay like refuse in the middle of the street. That reference finds connection to the very last paragraph of the prophecy, chapter 66, where Isaiah depicts corpses laying in a field, having lost their battle against God. Here in 525, after that terrible image is drawn on our minds, Isaiah utters these ominous words, For all this his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. The wrath of God will keep coming. The second phrase to be carried through the book is the phrase, he will also lift up a standard. The idea of the lifted standard will be connected to the idea of a sign. That idea is also found in the last paragraph of the prophecy in chapter 66. God is the king of kings who lifts up his own standard, his banner. And in this case, in chapter 5, a distant nation responds to his call. God whistles. And they hasten to his banner, 
with great speed. No doubt Isaiah's listeners envisioned the army of Assyria as they read these words. No one in the world had ever before seen anything like the army of Assyria, the destroyer of nations. They were able to field multiple armies, not one army, but multiple armies of 50,000 men, all equipped with iron weapons. They fought with well-integrated infantry, cavalry, chariots, and archers. No city had withstood their siege engines. Listen again to the description. No one in it is weary or stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps. Nor is the belt at its waist undone, nor its sandal strap broken. Its arrows are sharp, and all its bows are bent. The hooves of its horses seem like flint, and its chariot wheels like a whirlwind. The sound of the army is terrifying. Isaiah likens it to the sound of young lions in their prime as they attack and devour their prey. Then he skillfully heightens the effect by likening the roaring to the the overwhelming power of the sea. Its roaring is like a lioness, and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to deliver it. And it will growl over it in that day, like the roaring of the sea. If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. The grace of God has been spurned again and again over hundreds of years. This people holds Yahweh in contempt. They reject his word. They despise him, the Holy One of Israel. God's wrath will be unleashed against Judah. Is there hope for those who reject the grace of God? No, there is not. Not here. This chapter ends in darkness. Isaiah will be called into this darkness. He will be sent into the vineyard. He's given us the context of that call. We're now ready to consider how that call will form Isaiah's entire ministry experience. That's our next lesson. We'll address Isaiah's call next time in Isaiah chapter 6. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study of Isaiah, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the book of Romans, the Pentateuch, the Gospel of John, and the book of Acts.